Today's episode is brought to you by Fujifilm, and this is a company whose products I am well acquainted with. I myself have not one, but two Fujifilm cameras, an X-T4, and a GFX 50S2, and I really love both of them. They're intuitive, they're sharp, the colors are fantastic, and I'm not just saying that because their support makes the haunted screen possible, though it does, so thanks for that, guys. But whether you're a beginner or a pro, or you're interested in still images or video, Fujifilm's equipment is top-notch. I can honestly say that it's all I shoot on anymore. So check them out, alright? Okay, on with the show. watch this bizarre old movie. What was it called? The Island of Dr. Calamari? The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And did you like it, Addy? It's one of my favorite films. Have you seen it? No, I have not. It's about this insane old doctor who has a sleepwalker completely under his spell. <laughs> this crazy old loon. Can you imagine how horrifying that would be? To be completely under someone's spell and you like it, right? I mean, you like the painted sets and the makeup. And- no, I did not. Well, I like them, Nick Cage. I like them a lot. Not to mention the acting, the writing, and maybe most of all, the history behind the movie. And by the end of this episode, maybe you will too. Maybe not, but we're going to give this a shot, okay? Because this is the inaugural episode of The Haunted Screen, where film history is world history. My name is Travis Mushett, and I'm an adjunct professor of film and media studies at Fordham University and Marymount Manhattan College. And in this first season titled From Caligari to Hitler, we'll be looking at the story of German film from the end of World War I in 1918 to the rise of the Third Reich in 1933. To help us get oriented, I should give you a little background on who I am and what we're doing here. So before we leap all the way back to the Weimar era, a quick pit stop in 2014. Eight years ago, when I was still in grad school, my wife Laura and I traveled to Germany for the summer. Now, this trip had absolutely nothing to do with my academic research. I was working on a dissertation about left-wing American magazines, publications like Jacobin and N Plus One, but there's no reason for me to bore you with the details. Anyway, with me being a student and her an elementary school music teacher, we just had the summer off and decided to hop into the Brooklyn to Berlin pipeline to spend some time with some friends who were already living in the city. It didn't take long for the place to win us over. We fell in love with the DIY art scene, the big rambling bars, the 24-hour nightclub decadence, and the relaxed pace of life and reasonable cost of living, at least compared to New York. Oh, and the donor kebabs. When you're making your way home at 5 a.m., there is nothing like a hunk of meat wrapped in pita bread and slathered in white sauce. We loved our time there so much that we came back for another summer four years later. So I already had a preoccupation with German culture when... First, we have an update on the spread of the deadly coronavirus. Now, a short time ago, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak an international public health emergency. New York City remains the national epicenter of the pandemic. It has more than a quarter of those sickened so far. And this is overwhelming the city's hospitals and first responders. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that? Uh, by injection. 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 Injection.
Like a lot of people, I kind of lost it. I spent a lot of time drinking too many White Claws and then getting on Facebook to argue with a Trump-loving cousin that I've met maybe three times in real life, and also with a gym teacher at my old high school who suddenly got real protective of Walgreens windows during the summer of 2020. Those conversations, um, if you could even call them conversations, they weren't exactly productive. But when one of my, let's say, interlocutors, I'm still not sure which one, but when one of them did me the favor of reporting me to Facebook for not using my legal name, I took it as an opportunity to quit social media and claw back some of my sanity. For reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, I started watching a lot of German silent films. Maybe it was because my home country, the United States, it was, and frankly still is, feeling very Weimar. These movies offered a strange window into another moment of social instability and political turmoil, when everything from authoritarianism to socialism was suddenly thinkable. Film history pointed me toward history history. This podcast is the result. So that explains why I'm sitting behind a microphone right now. But what exactly am I hoping to accomplish? Well, I'm a huge fan of Karina Longworth's podcast, You Must Remember This. If you found your way to my little show, there's a good chance that you might already be listening to hers. If not, definitely check it out. But Longworth explores what she calls the secret and or forgotten history of Hollywood's first century. It's fantastic, really excellent, well-researched storytelling. And my goal here with The Haunted Screen is to pull off something similar, but with a bit of a different focus. You Must Remember This is about Hollywood, essentially the American film industry. Here, we'll be looking abroad, at the history of film outside of these United States. This season, we'll be looking at German film between World War I and the dawn of the Third Reich. If enough of you like what I'm doing and we have a second season, then I'll find another topic. The French New Wave, Soviet montage film, India's parallel cinema, Latin America's radical post-colonial third cinema movement, who knows? There is a big, wide world of movies out there, and each of them is a product of its own fascinating historical circumstances. That's for later, though. For the next six episodes, it's Weimar cinema. Even if you don't think of yourself as a fan of silent film, I encourage you to bear with me for at least a couple of episodes. There is a weird, dark magic to these films. Even a century or so later, Nosferatu is still creepy, Metropolis is still awe-inspiring, and Kameradschaft is still moving. That said, I am not going to assume you've seen any of the movies I talk about. It will definitely add to your experience with the show if you do watch some of them, but if a film's plot is necessary to understand the history that I'm discussing, I will summarize it. So even if you can't acclimate to the title cards or the acting that sometimes veers toward the, shall we say, florid, you can still follow along with the real-life drama. The love, the sex, the suspicious deaths, the daring escapes, the megalomaniacal directors, the moral dilemmas, and the political chaos. The story of Weimar Germany, and of the films that captivated it, is, I think, worth the ride. Whether or not you'd personally be psyched to join me for a screening of the four-and-a-half-hour silent epic, Dr. Mabuza the Gambler. The film we're looking at today, though, it's an easier sit, just 74 minutes. And like most of the films we'll explore this season, it's old enough to be in the public domain, which means you can stream it for free on YouTube. So watch it, or don't. Either way, let's start at the beginning, with the movie that kicked off Weimar film, and the war that kicked off the Weimar era. 
Today, we're looking at the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the long shadow of World War I, and the rise of the Expressionist movement. You're looking awfully pale there, Dr. Caligari. Maybe you need to get a little more sunlight. Vitamin D deficiency can have serious consequences. Of all the movies we'll cover this season, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is, by my estimate, the most influential. That's not to say that it's the best film to come out of Weimar, Germany, though it's definitely among my personal favorites. Its poster is literally on my iPhone case. But it is almost single-handedly responsible for inaugurating the movement that's now practically synonymous with Weimar cinema, German Expressionism. You can't understand German film in the 1920s and 30s without understanding Caligari, and you can't understand Caligari without knowing something about Germany's experience during the First World War. Now, any war is a failure of imagination, where the humans involved can't come up with a better way to resolve their arguments than mass murder. That said, World War I is a solid contender for the biggest, dumbest, most tragic failure in our species' history. Despite the claims of American President Woodrow Wilson, it was not a war to make the world safe for democracy. It doesn't fit cleanly into a simple World War II-style binary with those cartoonishly evil Nazi villains. Even a hundred-plus years after the end of the conflict, Historians still haven't reached consensus over why Europe lost its collective mind. If you do want to hear someone get really into the weeds of that conflict, though, you can check out the Blueprint for Armageddon series of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. It's great, it's thorough, and it's very, very long. But for our purposes, I am going to massively oversimplify a massively complicated series of events. So here we go. The stage for the war was set by imperial jockeying between Europe's great powers, by nationalism run amok, and by a messy tangle of alliances that meant the actions of a single teenager could yank practically the whole world into a big, bloody mess. In July 1914, in that corner of southeastern Europe known as the Balkans, a 19-year-old Serbian named Gavrilo Princip assassinated Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that ruled over the region. With that provocation, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. And all those alliances I just mentioned? They meant everyone was obligated to declare war on everybody else. Germany against Russia and France, Britain against Germany, Austria against Russia, Japan against Germany, Austria against Japan, and that was all just in that first August. The United States didn't jump into the fray until almost three years later, in 1917. Ferdinand's assassination then, it was the first domino that knocked all of these countries and more into a war that killed somewhere between 15 and 22 million people, around two and a half million of them German. Germany ultimately lost the war to an alliance spearheaded by Great Britain, France, and the United States. Russia started off as part of the winning team too, but it cracked under the pressure of the conflict. In large part due to popular anger against the war, the country went communist establishing the Soviet Union and executing the Tsar and his entire family. The Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires, both of them on Germany's side, they were also fatally wounded by the war. 
Germany's government didn't survive either. You see, suffering on the home front was intense. The British Navy led a blockade that kept much needed food imports from reaching the German citizenry, which caused widespread malnutrition and around half a million deaths by starvation. However, even as conditions at home deteriorated, state censorship of the press meant that the German people were fed a steady diet of bullshit. Almost right up until the moment of defeat, most Germans thought they were on the cusp of victory. When the truth finally became clear, they were not happy. In late October 1918, sailors stationed in the port city of Kiel discovered that their commanders were planning to send them on one last glorious suicide mission against the British fleet. Preferring not to die for a lost cause, they mutinied, and the country followed their lead. Within weeks, Kaiser Wilhelm II, the monarch of the German Empire, essentially the king, he was forced to quit his job and hightail it to the Netherlands. The end of the monarchy was largely peaceful, but the power vacuum it left behind led to a small-scale civil war between various political factions, an ideological battle that we'll return to later this episode. That fighting lasted until August of 1919, when a democratic constitution was adopted in the city of Weimar, this being the reason we call the government that followed the Weimar Republic. So that's an incredibly rushed recounting of one of human history's most complicated conflicts, but it outlines the basic contours of the trauma that Germany was emerging from as the 19-teens became the 1920s. The body count of World War I was almost unimaginable. One in 25 Germans died. Not one in 25 German soldiers, one in 25 Germans, period. Of course, the stats were significantly worse if, like most of the fighting age male population, you were serving on the front lines. One credible estimate suggests that about 14% of the country's soldiers died. And since enemies specifically targeted the top brass, nearly a quarter of the officers were killed. This isn't to say that Germany's suffering was unique. France had a roughly equivalent death rate, and soldiers from Serbia, Romania, and the Ottoman Empire were all killed at substantially higher ratios. But even the veterans who survived had their own wounds to tend to, both physical and psychological. Trench warfare was a hellscape out of a Bosch painting, a nightmare that those who experienced it could never fully shake. And that's true wherever they hailed from, be it the United Kingdom or Germany. I was 18, 18 and a half, I was called out. One day we got orders to storm a French position. I should never forget it as long as I live. The officer was going down the trench. Anybody who didn't go in was shot on sight for cowardice. My comrades fell right and left of me. But then I was confronted by a French corporal he with his bayonet at the ready, and I with my bayonet at the ready. We went over and we crawled. If you stood up, you were dead. I was quicker than he was. I tossed his rifle away, and I ran my bayonet through his chest. He fell, put his hand on the place where I had hit him, and then I thrust again. And I came across a Cornishman. He was ripped from his shoulder to his stomach with shrapnel. Blood came out of, of his mouth and he died. 
His inside was out on the ground in a pool of blood. I felt physically ill. I nearly vomited. He said, shoot me. My knees were shaking. Before we could draw a revolver to shoot him, he was beyond all human aid. And I was, quite frankly, ashamed of myself. He died. In 30 seconds, he died. My comrades were absolutely undisturbed by what had happened. And he just said one word, mother. I remembered then that we were told that the good soldier kills without thinking of his adversary as a human being. And that haunted me all my life. How the fuck do you come back from that? After seeing that kind of carnage, how does a person return to being an accountant, a factory worker, a husband, or a father? And that family you return to? They themselves have spent years hungry and scared. One in seven of your comrades from the front line is dead. Your friends, your relatives, your colleagues, a not small proportion of them are suddenly gone. And with the war lost, it feels like they died for nothing. As we look back from the vantage point of the present, even if we already know the answer, it makes you want to pose the question that this journalist asked another British survivor. Mr. Williams, was it all worth it? No. You'll never get me again a volunteer. Not me. Never. You, mon petit amour, are officially on bed rest. I've brewed you a pot of vintage Narcissus tea, and our family physician, Dr. Caligari, is on call should you feel another spell coming along. Among the millions of people picking up the pieces of their lives in post-war Germany, were two young writers from the now-defunct Austro-Hungarian Empire, Hans Janowitz and Karl Mayer. Like pretty much everyone else alive in Europe at the time, the lives of both of these guys had collided with the First World War. Janowitz had served as an infantry officer. He was well acquainted with the horrors we just heard those veterans describe. And Mayer? I've read conflicting reports about Mayer. The official version, the one that Janowitz wrote down in his memoirs in 1941, and that would go on to be repeated as fact, down through history, all the way to the Wikipedia page for Caligari, it went that Meyer faked insanity to avoid fighting in a war that he didn't believe in. In order to win an exemption, he was required to undergo a series of examinations from a sadistic military psychiatrist who would go on to inspire the character of Dr. Caligari himself. Now this is a really good story and one that has a nice symmetry with the movie's themes about madness and control. Sadly though, like much of the legend that surrounds this film, it's a story that's probably too good to be true. It seems more likely that Meyer avoided service by playing up a childhood foot injury, which doesn't quite have the same poetic resonance as pretending to be insane. Now, this isn't to say that Meyer's life was easy. He survived what was by most accounts a strange and difficult childhood. Meyer was from a wealthy family, but his dad, well, let me tell you about his dad. 
Papa Meyer had developed what he believed to be an airtight, quote-unquote, scientific gambling system. When little Carl was just a teenager, 15 or 16 years old, his dad took that system to Monte Carlo and, you guessed it, he lost fucking everything. With that shame hanging over his head, Papa Meyer killed himself, leaving Carl to care for his younger siblings. With his life of relative luxury suddenly and unceremoniously terminated, Carl wandered around Austria, taking odd jobs to support his family. Some of these jobs were truly odd. He sold barometers for a while. Some were less odd, like his work as a secretary. And others anticipated the artistic direction his life would ultimately take, like when he acted in peasant theaters and sang in choirs. Meyer was 19 when World War I started the perfect age to die senselessly in a trench somewhere. But thanks either to feigned insanity or an exaggerated foot trauma, he avoided the military, eventually making his way to Berlin, where he met Janowitz. In the years following the Great War, Berlin was an exciting place to be a young artist. Writers, painters, musicians, they were all making their way to the city. The pianist Claudio Arau spoke for many Bohemians of his generation when, in the 1970s, he told the filmmaker Gary Conklin, I consider myself a very lucky person to have experienced the 20s in Berlin. Looking back at it, I think it was one of the greatest cultural blossomings in history. That clip, along with some of the others that I'm using, is from the fantastic documentary Memories of Berlin, The Twilight of Weimar Culture. Sadly, it's not streamable anywhere. I had to track down a VHS copy through interlibrary loan, and then I literally bought a VCR off eBay to watch the film. If you're somehow able to get your hands on it, I can't recommend it enough. But auspiciously for Meyer and Janowitz, Berlin was a city where film was taken seriously. Here's Christopher Isherwood, the English expat writer whose semi-autobiographical novel Goodbye to Berlin would go on to be adapted into the film and the Broadway musical Cabaret. Uh, what struck me much more, because I was a great cinema goer, was the extreme intelligence of the audience. And I mean by that uh, working class audience. Um, at the time when the silent films were just coming to an end. Uh, for example, I can remember a film um, I think it was actually a Russian film, but that's neither here nor there, in which uh, there was a, um, a hill, and over the top of the hill came some horses. And they paused for a moment and then ran down the slope uh, out of shot. And you know that a very large percentage of the audience applauded just the sheer beauty of the shot. Now, that was a very sophisticated thing. I mean, you won't find that very often, that people really appreciate uh, an art in that kind of way, um, which is generally considered just for, you know, to keep you off the street or to amuse you and so on. Um, that struck me very much. I think there was an extraordinary appreciation of cinema as an art in that time. For the legendary German film critic Lata Eisner, whose work we'll return to over and over again this season, Berlin's cultural ferment didn't emerge in spite of the trauma of the Great War. It emerged because of it. The 20s were a curious time. There was the war had been lost, 
and people were rather unhappy in Germany. Like always, Germans, as soon as they are not happy and as soon as there is no materialism, they become somehow creating. That happened already during Goethe and Schiller in the time of Napoleon. And that happened in the 20s. So we had young poets and young painters. Now, personally, I don't put much stock in the old chestnut about suffering being a prerequisite for creativity. Of course, I've never lived through a world war. However, I do know that the moments in my life when I was at my most depressed, I wasn't exactly what you'd call productive. But there is no doubt that trauma can profoundly affect the way that people understand the world, and our aspiring screenwriters Karl Meyer and Hans Janowitz are a case in point. The gory, gruesome stupidity of World War I had turned both of these young men into pacifists, and it's really hard not to read their politics into the movie they'd write together. In a book called From Caligari to Hitler, probably the most famous and influential thing ever written on Weimar film, and the source of the title for this season, in that book, the critic and theorist Siegfried Krakauer puts those politics at the center of his interpretation of the movie. Though, to be fair, Krakauer was writing from the vantage point of the late 1940s, after the Second World War, and he had a tendency to retroactively read every Weimar film as a harbinger of the fascism that would come later. It's a book with a lot of flaws, both in terms of facts and interpretation, but it's still required reading if you're into this stuff. I'm actually going to read an extended passage from it right now, because otherwise I'd just be paraphrasing Krakauer's account of the Caligari origin story. Krakauer himself was relying on Janowitz's unpublished memoirs as his source. Remember, Janowitz is our infantry officer, not the kid with the shittiest dad in Austria. Anyway, here's Krakauer. For clarity's sake, when he refers to the Holsten Wall, He's talking about a ring of parks and roads that surrounds Hamburg's inner city. Okay, here we go. One evening in October 1913, Janowitz was strolling through a fair at Hamburg, trying to find a girl whose beauty and manner had attracted him. The tents of the fair covered the Reeperbahn, known to any sailor as one of the world's chief pleasure spots. In search of the girl, Janowitz followed the fragile trail of a laugh, which he thought hers, into a dim park bordering the Holsten Wall. The laugh, which apparently served to lure a young man, vanished somewhere in the shrubbery. When, a short time later, the young man departed, another shadow, hidden until then in the bushes, suddenly emerged and moved along, as if on the scent of that laugh. Passing this uncanny shadow, Janowitz caught a glimpse of him. He looked like an average bourgeois. Darkness reabsorbed the man and made further pursuit impossible. The following day, Big headlines in the local press announced, Horrible sex crime on the Holston Wall. Young Gertrude, murdered. An obscure feeling that Gertrude might have been the girl of the fair impelled Janowitz to attend the victim's funeral. During the ceremony, he suddenly had the sensation of discovering the murderer, who had not yet been captured. The man he suspected seemed to recognize him too. It was the bourgeois, the shadow in the bushes. Okay. There is no way to be sure of how much of this story is true, if any of it's true at all. But whether the movie was inspired by Janowitz's memories, or his memories were rewritten to correspond with the movie, the two do show some overlap. 
fairs, carnivals, they feature prominently in both, as does an unsolved murder. The setting of Caligari is a town called Holstenwall. It was five years after the alleged incident, in the summer of 1918, that Janowitz and Meyer were introduced by a mutual friend. The pair hit it off right away, and given their shared literary proclivities, they got it in their heads to try writing something together. The final, necessary spark of inspiration came at another carnival, this one in Berlin. In one of the sideshows, the two guys saw an allegedly hypnotized man perform seemingly impossible feats of strength while muttering these weird gnomic aphorisms. According to Janowitz, it was that very night that he and Meyer got to work on the screenplay, or rather, the scenario, as they were called back in the days of silent film. The two proved a good team. As Janowitz somewhat cringily put it, he was the father who planted the seed, and Meyer the mother who conceived and ripened it. Awkward metaphors aside, Meyer and Janowitz gave birth to a dark little supernatural mystery. In its broad strokes, here it is. And if it's not clear already, I am about to spoil a century-old film for you. A carnival arrives in the fictional German town of Holstenwall. Two young men, Alan and Francis, they stop by an act hosted by Dr. Caligari. Caligari is a spooky little wrecking ball of a man, and as part of his act, he awakens a sleepwalker named Cesare. The film isn't super clear on exactly what Cesare is or how he operates, but essentially he's a goth-looking oracle that's under Caligari's hypnotic control. The crowd is encouraged to ask Cesare questions, and Alan asks how long he has left to live. Cesare tells him he'll be dead by dawn, and sure enough, a shadowy figure kills Alan in his bed that night. A number of other suspicious crimes convulse Holston Wall, and Alan's surviving friend Francis is convinced that Caligari and Cesare must be behind them. After Cesare drops dead during a failed attempt to kidnap Francis's love interest Jane, Francis does some surveillance on Caligari and catches him slipping into the local insane asylum. Francis follows him in and runs into the asylum's director, who is none other than Dr. Caligari himself. Francis manages to enlist some of the asylum staff to help him rifle through their boss's stuff while he's asleep. They read the director's diary, which reveals that he's obsessed with a medieval Italian monk named, you guessed it, Caligari. And this old Caligari had uncovered the secrets of mind control and used them to create a sleepwalking hitman. This story inspired the director to take on Caligari's identity as an alter ego and to start running experiments on a sleepwalker in the asylum, our dearly departed Cesare. The police are called, New Caligari is wrapped up in a straitjacket, and he winds up an inmate in his own asylum. Okay, that leaves out a number of twists and turns and red herrings, but it pretty much summarizes the story that Janowitz and Meyer wrote. Though there's been an intense, century-long debate about whether their screenplay included one key plot detail. But we'll get to that in a minute. So this is just me, your host, Travis, and I'm popping in to remind you who's paying the bills here at the haunted screen. And that's our friends at Fujifilm. Now, Fujifilm wasn't founded until 1934, so about a decade and a half after Meyer and Janowitz wrote the script for Caligari, so they weren't able to have their film shot on high-quality Fujifilm gear. As you'll see, things turned out okay for them anyway, but here in the 21st century, you don't have to take that risk. Fujifilm products are nothing if not reliable, so if you've got your own groundbreaking cinematic masterpiece in the works, give them a look, okay? 
After six weeks of work, our friends Hans Janowitz and Carl Meyer finished their script for Caligari. Now, it was time to sell it. The Novus writers didn't have many contacts in the film industry, but the one they did have couldn't have been better, at least in hindsight. Somehow, Janowitz had made the acquaintance of a 29-year-old producer named Eric Palmer. This is a name that you are going to hear a lot going forward, because Palmer would go on to establish himself as arguably the most powerful person in the European film industry. He was essentially the German Louis B. Mayer, the man who made movies happen, and he had a hand in a stunning proportion of the classic films that we're going to discuss this season. But that was all in the future. At this point, the spring of 1919, he was the head of production at a small studio called Decla Bioscop. Now, Palmer was known to stretch the truth. Like pretty much everyone in show business, he had a penchant for self-mythologizing and a tendency to claim credit whether or not he deserved it. But as we stumble through the fog of history, we have to rely on the evidence that survived, even if we need to take that evidence with a grain of salt. Anyway, according to Palmer, Meyer and Janowitz showed up at his office unannounced with the screenplay for Caligari in hand. In an unscheduled meeting with a couple of unproven writers, it wasn't high on Palmer's list of priorities. So he asked them to leave the script behind so that he could read it eventually. But the duo demanded that he listen as Meyer read the whole thing out loud right there, right then. It's not clear why they were so insistent. Maybe they sensed Palmer was trying to blow them off and would throw away their work the second they walked out the door. Or, as David Robinson speculates in the BFI Film Classics book on Caligari, they might have been embarrassed by the shabby, poorly edited state of their script. Regardless, they wore Palmer down, and he agreed to listen to Meyer's one-man performance. This, by the way, is one of those moments in cinematic history I would have loved to have been there for, even if I wouldn't have been able to follow exactly what was going on. Okay, now's as good a time as any. Cards on the table, my German is... It's not good. I have the fluency of someone with a 1,138-day streak and counting on Duolingo, which is to say I do not have fluency. I can order a meal off a Speisekata, or let a Berlin bouncer know that I'm in a party of dry. Sometimes I can even stumble through a Nachrichten article in Der Spiegel, but my research for this podcast was restricted to works written in English or translated into it. Also, to anyone who does speak German, I realize my pronunciation is a little bit all over the place. I'm trying my best. Make of my limitations what you will. Anyway, despite my unimpressive language skills, I still would have loved to have watched Meyer read that script because somehow it worked. Palmer, his assistant, and Janowitz, they sucked down cigarettes while little Carl Meyer, this guy was all of five foot one, he apparently gave the performance of his life. First, the two writers had refused to leave until their script was heard. Now Palmer wouldn't let them leave before they'd signed a contract. Granted, it wasn't a great contract. Meyer and Janowitz had to settle for a payment of 4,000 marks when they'd planned not to accept anything below 10,000. And significantly, the contract gave the producers the authority to change the script as they saw fit. But it was a contract nonetheless. Their story, or some version of it, was going to become a movie. Where are we?
you headed? We're going to Caligari Carnival. At the same time that Palmer was assembling the team that would take Caligari from script to screen, control of the country was up for grabs. As I mentioned earlier, the disaster of the war led to the collapse of the German monarchy in 1918, ending the 500-year reign of the House of Hohenzollern. This was an interesting moment for a power vacuum. Just one year earlier, Vladimir Lenin and his Bolshevik party had overthrown the Russian Tsar with the aim of establishing the communist state that would come to be known as the Soviet Union. To the German far left, who would soon organize themselves into the Communist Party of Germany or the KPD under the leadership of Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, to them, the Russian Revolution was an inspiration. But for those of other political persuasions, it was a warning. Communists were far from a majority in the country. At its peak in 1920, the party had no more than 400,000 members in a country of 60 million people, and it never exceeded 17% of the votes in federal elections. But the Bolsheviks were a small party too, and they'd proven that a dedicated cadre of radicals could indeed seize power over an entire country. This possibility spooked not just German conservatives, but also the moderate socialist of the Social Democratic Party, or SPD, which was led by a former saddle maker and bar owner named Friedrich Ebert. The SPD trusted the ballot box, and they saw this as their moment to establish a parliamentary democracy. The communists, who'd already split from the SPD a few years earlier over its support for the war, at that point, they were the most potent threat to the Social Democrats' vision. They didn't want a parliament. Instead, they preferred a network of workers' and soldiers' councils modeled along Soviet lines. Whereas the bulk of the Great War had taken place off of German soil, this new conflict, known as the German Revolution or the November Revolution, it ripped through the heart of the country. In January 1919, a week of street fighting remembered as the Spartacist Uprising culminated with the murder of Liebknecht in Luxembourg. These killings were an SPD-authorized attempt to decapitate the communist movement. Both leaders were shot. Liebknecht's body was deposited nameless in a morgue, and Luxembourg was dumped into the Landwehr Canal. The circumstances of their demise elevated the pair to the pantheon of the communist mythos, and their deaths remained a painful flashpoint in German cultural memory that the nation would work through for decades to come, whether through politics, through street combat, or even through movies. Sind Sie Frau Rosa Luxemburg? Dem Bild nach müssten Sie sein. deaths of League Connect in Luxembourg didn't put an end to the fighting. The month before Janowitz and Meyer signed their contract for the Caligari script, their city was convulsed in the Berlin March battles. The communists had launched a general strike demanding that their workers' councils be recognized as the legitimate government. In response, the Social Democrats sent in the Fry Corps, which were paramilitary militias made up largely of disgruntled veterans of World War I. 
these guys hated the communists just a little bit more than they hated the SPD-controlled government that they were supposed to be serving. And they'd eventually become a fertile recruiting ground for the Nazi party. The fighting here was brutal, often taking the form of house-to-house and hand-to-hand combat that killed as many as 3,000 Berliners. All of this fighting turned the schism between Germany's moderate and far left into a chasm. The SPD saw the communists as fanatics, radicals hell-bent on imposing their ideology on the country, regardless of what the majority of the people actually wanted. And the KPD felt betrayed by social democrats who were ready to ally themselves with the political right and kill their fellow socialists, most of whom had been members of the SPD just a few years earlier. From the vantage point of the far left, the social democrats had joined with proto-fascists to murder communists. With this much bad blood, reconciliation was effectively off the table. The situation that Caligari was born into makes it really tempting to see the film as a political allegory. Indeed, when he recounted the making of the film two decades after its debut, Hans Janowitz said that he and Meyer had intended their script as a kind of social commentary, if not on their country's civil strife, then on the forces that produced it. He claimed that it was, at its heart, a story about control and submission, about, as Krakauer put it, the madness inherent in authority. Dr. Caligari's power to force Cesare to kill and die on his behalf stands in for the power of the German government to force everyday citizens to kill and die on the battlefields of World War I, or, more broadly, for the power of any ruling class to seize control of the lives of everyone else. Caligari's comeuppance, where he himself is forced into a straitjacket, it becomes a radical indictment of that authority, where it's those in charge who are unmasked as the truly insane. This interpretation is at the core of Caligari's biggest behind-the-scenes controversy. If you've seen the movie, you'll know that the summary of the story I gave earlier, which starts with Dr. Caligari showing up at the fair and ends with his ultimate incarceration at the asylum, that's not exactly how the film appears on screen. All of those events are bracketed by a frame story. This is essentially what it sounds like. The main plot of the film is framed by a separate second story that gives context to the main plot, turning it into a story within a story. Think of The Princess Bride, where the grandfather reads a book to little Fred Savage that contains the main action of the movie. Or The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy's time along the yellow brick road is stuck between those black and white Kansas scenes that suggest that she maybe dreamed the whole thing up. The first scene of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari shows our hero Francis sitting on a bench with another man as a dazed, ethereal Jane walks by. Francis tells his companion that Jane is his fiancée and that he wants to discuss the strange experiences that they've lived through together. This establishes that Francis is our narrator for the body of the film. Then, after Caligari is straightjacketed at the end of the movie, we return to Francis on the bench and discover that it is he who is actually the mental patient. Jane and Cesare are also among the committed, and Caligari himself is the doctor presiding over the asylum. Like The Wizard of Oz, this final twist casts doubt on everything that came before. It makes us ask whether or not the whole story was just the ramblings of a disordered mind. Did Francis make the whole thing up? Janowitz always said that he hated this reversal, and that his co-writer Karl Meyer did too. Meyer died of cancer in 1944, at the age of 49, and doesn't seem to have left behind an account of his feelings about the frame story. But here's how Janowitz described their reaction. Karl Meyer and I both expressed our dissatisfaction in a storm of thunderous remonstrances, 
heaped upon the guilty heads of the persons in charge of production and upon the absent director. Meyer was raging, and I too did not withhold my contempt for the impertinent blunderers who had put our drama into a box that obscured its clarity. All of this rage centered on the way that the last scene allegedly reversed the film's message. What had been an indictment of authority was now an affirmation of it. Caligari was no longer the villain. He was a professional caring for a madman who needed his help. Authority is no longer an insane and sinister force that must be torn down. It's necessary. Caligari holds power over his patients for their own good. As Krakauer put it, a revolutionary film was thus turned into a conformist one. This new ending is central to Krakauer's interpretation of the film. He titled his book From Caligari to Hitler for a reason. Since films were a mass media designed to appeal to a mass audience, he believed that more than any other art form, they provided a direct line into society's collective unconscious. He thought that the altered ending represented the latent desires of the German people. Even as they might entertain a fantasy of liberation, either in the form of communist revolution or Caligari's comeuppance, they ultimately longed to be dominated. With the benefit of hindsight, he saw the doctor as a premonition of the Fuhrer. Krakauer's book is one of the most read and most influential works of film scholarship ever written, and his interpretation has reverberated to the present day. Honestly, it's enticing in its simplicity. It turns a strange little film into a parable of the German psyche, a harbinger of fascism. But there are reasons to question it. First, Despite Janowitz's claims to the contrary, his and Meyer's original version of the script did include a frame, though not the one that made it to the screen. For decades after the film premiered, no one had access to the original script. Werner Krauss, the actor who played Caligari, he had the only surviving copy, and it didn't become accessible to historians until 1995. But in this version, Meyer and Janowitz's original version, the film starts with a scene set 20 years after the story's main events. Now married, Francis and Jane are hosting a party, and the guests cajole Francis into telling his story. So while the writers didn't intend for us to see things from the perspective of a madman, the plan was always to give the audience one person's subjective version of events, maybe even an unreliable one, with Francis emphasizing his good and the doctor's evil. But beyond these historical quibbles, a lot of viewers don't read the ending as being as conclusive as Krakauer or Janowitz did. When I taught this film last fall, my students and I spent some time dissecting the final shot, where the iris tightly encircles the asylum director's face before the screen goes black. His expression is stony and cryptic. To me, and to many of my students, it seemed an ambiguous note to end the movie on. And we're not alone. Some of the best scholars writing on Weimar film people like Thomas L. Sacer and David Robinson, they agree that the film leaves open the possibility that Francis' story is true and that the asylum director diagnosed him as insane so that no one would believe his story. All of Janowitz and Krakauer's raging and Janowitz's histrionic claim that the change was a, quote, raping of his work, it relies on an overly certain interpretation of the film's last few minutes. Have you ever heard of uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? 
You can't see film without seeing that first. Whoa, okay. The cross cuts? I'm like really into editing. Editing is like my favorite. I'm like an editing freak. Really? Oh. It's German, okay. black and white, and silent. After The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari established itself as an era-defining masterpiece, pretty much everyone who'd even been tangentially involved in the project tried to take credit for pretty much everything. This is especially true of Caligari's most distinctive feature, its sets. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Caligari makes zero effort at looking natural or realistic. Instead, it looks like it's unfolding in a dream, or maybe more accurately, a nightmare. As the film critic Roger Ebert put it, the sets formed a jagged landscape of sharp angles and tilted walks and windows, staircases climbing crazy diagonals, trees with spiky leaves, grass that looks like knives. When Cesare flees across the rooftops with Jane in tow, it's almost like he's running across a cartoon mountain range. And the film doesn't at all hide the fact that it was shot in an artificial environment, on a movie set. Shadows and other designs are painted directly onto the canvas backdrops. It's a look that would go on to influence the universal classic monster movies, like Dracula and Frankenstein. And Tim Burton's whole aesthetic is essentially an updated version of what was happening in this film and in some of the other German silent classics we'll be looking at in the next few episodes. The castle and Edward Scissorhands would be right at home in Holstein Wall. This is an influence that Burton himself acknowledges, and Henry Selleck, the director of the Burton-produced Nightmare Before Christmas, has admitted that that film's look is, in his words, entirely German Expressionism. Now, German Expressionism is a controversial category. People apply it in wildly different ways. Sometimes the term is used loosely, covering essentially every German film released between the end of World War I and the rise of the Nazis. At the other end of the spectrum, the film historian Barry Salt insists that it's a movement consisting of precisely six movies. And some of the filmmakers most associated with Expressionism rejected the label, Fritz Lang even had the title character of his 1922 film, Dr. Mabuza the Gambler, dismiss the movement as nothing but a game. But you can't understand The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, really you can't understand Weimar cinema, without knowing the broad outlines of the Expressionist art movement. So, let's take a look. Expressionism is now perhaps most associated with the medium of film, but it wasn't born on the big screen. It was born on the canvas, the page, and the stage. The first few decades of the 20th century were boiling over with artistic movements. All of the isms that you read about in your Art History 101 textbook, or that you pass by on a trip to New York's Museum of Modern Art. Cubism, Dadaism, Surrealism. It was an era of manifestos, of people thinking seriously about what art can do and should do. Among them was a loose group of painters, writers, playwrights, and theater directors whose work would shape a generation of German filmmakers and reverberate to the present day. The artists who've acquired the Expressionist label have a lot of differences, but they share a common desire to depict the experience of human subjectivity. For an Expressionist, art isn't a means by which to document the world in some timeless, objective sense. It's not primarily about capturing physical reality, or propagating a specific ideological doctrine, or breaking down the visual field into its component parts. It's about expressing a mood, a tone, or an emotion. My use of the word expressing there is, of course, intentional. For the Impressionists, painters like Monet, Degas, and Renoir, 
their work was, among other things, about sharing their impressions of the external world. With those trademark big, visible brushstrokes, they depicted what light looks like when it plays on the water's surface, or how motion blurs the crowds traversing a busy Parisian boulevard. It was about how the external world impressed itself on their consciousness. Expressionists turned this formula on its head, pushing their own personal internal reality outward. They wanted to show the outside world how things looked inside their own psyches. And those scenes were rarely pleasant. Though it was finished in 1893, a decade or so before people started calling Expressionists Expressionists, the archetypal painting of the movement is probably The Scream by the Norwegian artist Edvard Munch. You know this one. It's the one with a ghostly, hairless figure pressing his hands to his cheeks as he howls in front of a distorted, unnaturally colored landscape. It's primal, despairing, almost electrically charged by Munch's anxiety and despair. It expresses the dread and terror within him. In the years that followed, the expressionist approach became a major force across the arts in Northern and Central Europe. When it comes to visual art, two important expressionist groups coalesced in Germany in the early years of the 1900s. The first, known as De Brucke or The Bridge, was founded in Dresden in 1905. Its most famous member was Ernst Ludwig Kirchner, and along with three other founding members, he sought to attract, quote, all elements of revolution and unrest. These guys, and they were all guys, they were obsessed with the alienation that they thought defined the modern world. This focus was subtly different from the more mystical, spiritual emphasis of the other major group of Expressionist painters, Der Blaue Reiter, the Blue Rider in English. These folks came together in Munich in 1911, and if you're into art, you've probably heard some of their names, like Vasily Kandinsky, Paul Klee, and Franz Marc. There were also Expressionist painters who weren't part of either group, like the Austrian Oskar Kokoschka. I have a particular fondness for Kokoschka's work. When I was a teenager, his painting The Bride of the Wind was the wallpaper on my old desktop computer. It's a self-portrait of Kokoschka lying beside his lover Alma Mahler, the widow of the composer Gustav Mahler. Even though it's a peaceful scene, you can still see the turbulence of their relationship in his brushstrokes and his melancholy longing in the dark blues and purples. As you'd expect when an expressionist is involved, theirs was a stormy, passionate affair, and it culminated with Alma leaving him for Walter Gropius, the architect who founded the Bauhaus School. True to the expressionist credo, Kokoschka channeled all of his heartbreak into his work, not just painting, but poetry and playwriting as well. And it's on the stage that we find the clearest premonitions of the direction that German film would take at the beginning of the 1920s. All the way back in 1909, Kokoschka's play Murderer, The Hope of Women showed a lot of the DNA of expressionist cinema. The creation of an unsettling mood took precedence over a clear narrative logic. The set was dark and distorted, and the acting heavily stylized. As one critic put it, the words are remembered only as subtitles under the extremely powerful images. This made for an aesthetic well-suited for silent film, where the nature of the medium prioritizes the visuals over the words. And in Kakashka's play, those visuals must have been shocking. At the first performance in Vienna, a riot broke out when one character branded the flesh of another. And if not for the intervention of some well-connected friends, the play's opening night probably would have ended with Kakashka in handcuffs. In spite of the risks, he wasn't alone in pushing the German stage in provocative new directions. Georg Kaiser adopted a clipped, condensed writing style to create lines as pressurized as a pipe bomb. 
And as the 19-teens wore on, Ernst Toller pressed the expressionist style into ever more political terrain, incorporating both his rage and his moral authority earned fighting on the Western Front. As fate would have it, in April 1919, just two weeks before Karl Meyer showed up at the offices of Decla Bioscop to give that bravura performance of the Caligari script, some anarchists and communists down in Munich declared the creation of an independent state called the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Its president for the first six days of its 27-day existence was Ernst Toller, who christened his uprising the Bavarian Revolution of Love. Though the Freikorps militias who stormed Munich and put down the uprising with bullets and flamethrowers, they might disagree with that characterization. There were also a handful of films that were exploring expressionist themes and aesthetics in the years before Caligari. The work of Paul Wegener warrants particular mention here. Wegener did it all. He acted, directed, wrote, and produced. And he had a special interest in both macabre stories and stylized filmmaking. The 1913 film The Student of Prague, which he produced and starred in, it's the story of a young man whose reflection escapes the mirror and starts wreaking havoc on his behalf, even to the point of framing him for murder. This early horror film featured some groundbreaking trick photography on the part of cinematographer Guido Sieber, who used double exposures to allow Wegener to play both the student and his doppelganger in the same scene. Wegener also directed and starred in a trilogy of films about the Gollum, appropriating the Jewish folktale of a rabbi who built a creature out of mud that ultimately broke free of his control. Think of these movies as the Central European cousins of the American Frankenstein franchise. The first two films, which were released in 1915 and 1917, they've mostly been lost to time. In the still images and short clips that have managed to survive, though, you can see the expressive costuming and sets. At six foot five, Wegener's Gollum plods through the Jewish quarter of 16th century Prague, where the buildings look almost cave-like, as though the rooms have been carved out of rock. The Gollum himself is a miracle of character design that fits in seamlessly with his surroundings. Wegener really looks like he's been sculpted from clay. The third installment, The Gollum, How He Came Into the World, was released in the fall of 1920, about eight months after Caligari hit theaters. This last film has made it to the present day intact, and it's an expressionist classic in its own right. Even watching it years later, it's still a legitimately creepy movie. Listen, I saw The Gollum when I was his age. You don't even know what scary is. The young Roger Sterling wasn't the only person who responded to the film. By the time of its release, the German public was hungry for this kind of dark cinema. After the trauma and tumult of war and revolution, the emotional anguish and radical possibility that Expressionism embodied moved from the avant-garde fringes into the mainstream of German society. The historical moment after the Great War's end could be summed up in the concept of Aufbruch. Siegfried Krakauer defined Aufbruch as, quote, a departure from the shattered world of yesterday towards a tomorrow built on the grounds of revolutionary conceptions, which is a lot of meaning to fit in two syllables. The sentiment is definitely appropriate, though. In January of 1919, Germany held its first national elections of the post-Kaiser era, and the first where women were allowed to vote. In fact, the casualties inflicted on the war front meant that women voters actually outnumbered men by 2.8 million. The elected representatives convened, of course, in the central German city of Weimar. Berlin was still too infested with political violence to host, and Weimar's place in the German imagination made it a more fitting choice anyway. 
The delegates were there to write a constitution along liberal democratic lines, and no city was as popularly associated with Enlightenment ideas. Weimar, after all, had been home to 18th and 19th century luminaries like Friedrich Schiller and Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Led by the appropriately named Weimar Coalition, made up of the Social Democratic Party, the German Democratic Party, and the Center Party, who all occupied the middle ground between communism on the left and monarchism and proto-fascism on the right, they designed the country's first democratic constitution. The Weimar Republic was born in chaos, but also in hope. It was a new era that required a new cinema, and that cinema was about to premiere its first masterpiece. Since the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, has the screen been so filled with the eerie, the shocking, the incredible, the diabolical? Even today, the look of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is striking. At the time of the film's release, though, it was revolutionary. So maybe it's no surprise that basically everyone whose name appears in Caligari's credits wants to claim the aesthetic was their idea. Hans Janowitz said that he and Karl Meyer described the design explicitly in their script, which was conveniently lost when he wrote his memoirs in the 1940s. But the original script that was unearthed in 1995 contains no such description, and a reliable news article from 1926 claims that at that point, Janowitz, quote, still insists that the director Robert Vina should never have handled the production of Caligari in the abstract style he gave it. Two and a half decades after the movie's release, the producer Eric Palmer insisted that he had made the executive decision to put Caligari in the hands of the three artists who composed Decla's designing staff. In the same quote, though, he mixed up the names of one of these artists with another set designer who was not involved, which maybe doesn't speak too well of his memory there. But the people with the strongest claim to the Caligari look, or Caligarisma as the French called it, are Palmer's co-producer, the director, and of course, the set designers themselves. While Palmer would be the producer who was most successful at using Caligari as a professional springboard, it was Robert Meinert who actually oversaw the production. He's the guy who brought on designer Herman Varm, and Varm was the guy who rounded out the design team by bringing on the two Walters, Walter Ryman and Walter Rorig. The threesome had worked together on the 1919 film The Pest in Florence, whose sets were impressive but naturalistic. They had greater ambitions, though. All three were in the orbit of Der Sturm, or The Storm, a cutting-edge Berlin magazine of art and literature. Among other trends, the magazine promoted the subjectivity and anti-realism of expressionism, and the designers were inspired by the movement's principle of balong, or the imperative to represent the inner reality of people and things, rather than their deceptive external appearances. Ryman, in particular, saw the Caligari script as an opportunity to bring this radical aesthetic from the canvas to the screen. Varum would later write, We spent a whole day and part of the night reading through this very curious script. We realized that a subject like this needed something out of the ordinary in the way of sets. Ryman, whose painting in those days had expressionist tendencies, suggested doing sets expressionistically. We immediately set to work roughing up designs in that style. 
When they presented their concept sketches the next day, the director Robert Vina was immediately on board. The producer Robert Minert, however, he took a minute to come around. After some deep consideration though, he saw the potential to explode the possibilities of this nascent art form, to explore the limits of what the moving image can convey, to build a new world out of a new aesthetic and to give the masses a new way of seeing. Just kidding. What he saw was a shrewd opportunity to all but guarantee financial success. Varum again. Minert wanted the style and production to appear crazy, as crazy as could be. The film would then be a success as a sensation, regardless of whether the press turned out negative or positive, whether the critics killed it or praised it as art. Either way, the experiment would be in profit. With the producers finally behind them, albeit for their own reasons, the designers got to work at a breakneck pace. Varm designed the sets, Rorig painted them, Ryman took care of the costumes, and inside of two weeks, they'd established the look that would launch the movement. So the script was written, the sets were built, and the movie was now in the hands of the director Robert Vina. If Eric Palmer had gotten his way, though, it would have wound up in the hands of a future legend of German cinema, Fritz Lang. We'll spend more time on Lang later this season. A lot more time. But in today's cameo, Palmer approached the monocled 28-year-old with Meyer and Janowitz's script, and Varm, Ryman, and Rorig's concept art, and asked him if he was up for directing the project. Lang was interested, but his 1919 film The Spiders had been a hit, and he was compelled to follow it up with the sequel. Like everyone else, though, Lang would feel the need to grab his piece of the Caligari legend by insisting that it was he who had suggested the controversial frame story. Though a lot of credible film historians have taken his word for it, I'm inclined to agree with David Robinson, who pointed to a number of holes in Lang's version of events. And as we'll see a few episodes from now, Lang was a habitual liar and a Trump-level egoist, not somebody whose word means that much. More believable is the account of Hans Janowitz, which places the credit for the frame story, or if you're Janowitz, the blame, on Robert Vina. See, Vina gets blamed for a lot. If it's possible to direct one of the first and greatest milestones in film history and still be considered a lovable loser, Vina qualifies. That's probably why he's one of my favorite characters in the whole Caligari saga. This guy has taken a lot of shit over the years. Check out the caricature of him in the show notes as an example. Siegfried Krakauer basically called him a fascist, writing that he glorified authority and turned a revolutionary film into a conformist one. And Lada Eisner, the critic who along with Krakauer has done more than anyone to cement the prevailing narrative of Weimar film, she wrote that he was, quote, a second-rate director who misled people into thinking him remarkably gifted. As much as I respect these two, on this point, they can fuck right off. Let me tell you a bit about Robert Vina, because sadly, a bit is all we really know for sure. Maybe thanks to dismissive early critics like Krakauer and Eisner, there's been a lot less research on him than on the other directors we'll look at this season. Up until a few decades ago, scholars were even getting his age wrong, saying that he was seven or eight years younger than he actually was. But now it seems clear that he was born in Breslau in 1873. Vina came from a theatrical family. His dad was a well-regarded actor, and his little brother Conrad followed in his father's footsteps. Robert, though, he took some time to find himself. He bounced around between Humboldt University of Berlin and the University of Vienna. Officially, he was studying law, but he also enrolled in decidedly non-law student courses, 
classes with names like Psychology and Aesthetics in the Works of Art of Richard Wagner and the Problem of Form in the New Fine Arts. It appears that he tried to keep his artistic flame burning even as he worked as an attorney in the years after he got his degree. A few days before his 30th birthday, maybe stirred by this scary milestone, he wrote a letter to the celebrated composer Engelbert Humperdinck, asking if he'd be willing to read a libretto that Vina had just written. If Engelbert wrote back, there's no evidence of it. In 1908, when Vina was 35, he took a baby step toward the arts, accepting a job as the manager at the Neue Weiner Buna Theater in Vienna. Still, his role there was administrative rather than creative. It wasn't until he was 39 that he finally began to see some artistic success. By that point, a lot of theater people were moving into the brand new film industry. Vina seems to have used that inflection point to reinvent himself, writing and possibly co-directing his first movie, The Weapons of Youth. Like 80 to 90% of German silent films, The Weapons of Youth is now lost, but he must have done a fair enough job because he worked on 30 films as a writer or director before he was handed the reins of Caligari in 1919. And despite what haters like Krakauer and Eisner said about him, Vina seems to have been very well liked by the people who worked with him. The actress Alexandra Sorina, the lead in his 1924 film The Hands of Orlock, once described him thusly, Robert Vina is the director with a delicate artistic sensibility, constantly seeking new artistic challenges. He knows the psychological depth of his actors and during the filming manages to create a hypnotic atmosphere for his entourage. It's not a coincidence then, or an accident of fate that he was the director behind the film as widely admired as Caligari. It can be hard to isolate the contributions of any one person in an art form as collaborative as film, and that's doubly true for a film that was made more than a hundred years back into the mists of time. But Vina brought a lot to the project, and had the good sense to put his trust in talented people. First and maybe foremost, while Meinert had to be talked into it, Vina supported the design team's wild, era-defining approach to the sets from the moment they showed him their sketches. And as the director of the film, his enthusiasm for working on that avant-garde register likely played an important role in getting the producers on board. And of course, a screenplay, even a great screenplay, can only go so far. Film is a visual medium, and the director is ultimately responsible for translating the text to the screen. And in Caligari, that translation is masterful. I'm going to cite the critic David Robinson again. He points to two scenes in particular where the direction elevates the imagery to an iconic level. There's the moment at the fairgrounds where Dr. Caligari first awakens Cesare from his slumber. We get a close-up of Cesare's face, painted in that goth makeup. His skin is powdered white, his lipstick is black, and he has two black triangles painted beneath his eyes. A tight black iris encircles his face, heightening the sense of claustrophobia. We are stuck there with the monster as his eyes slowly open, and Jesus Christ, they open wide. The gaze is at once startled, innocent, and menacing, and it's focused outward, on the viewer, on us. Even today, it's unsettling. Robinson's second exceptional scene is the one where Cesare kidnaps Jane. He steps through her window and methodically moves across her room to the bed where she lays sleeping. That walk is a single, long take that ratchets up the tension, dragging it out, pushing it to a point that's nearly unbearable. Cesare lifts his knife above Jane, but as he looks down at her, her beauty makes him reconsider, 
and instead of stabbing her, he reaches down to touch her face. She jolts awake, and all the slowness bursts into a furious tussle between them until Cesare overpowers Jane and carries her out the window from whence he came. As Robinson puts it, in each of these scenes, the realization goes far beyond the written description and is achieved only through extraordinarily sympathetic interpretation, fine calculation, and above all, total collaboration between Vina, the designers, and the actors. And that collaboration is exactly what the director is there to facilitate. They're the conductor, keeping all the instrumentalists in harmony. When it comes to the acting in the film, the standout performances are, maybe paradoxically, the ones that best blend in with the expressionist surroundings. Specifically, I'm talking about Conrad Veidt's work as Cesare and Werner Krauss as Dr. Caligari. Both of them vibrate on the same dark, otherworldly wavelength as those spectacular sets, which makes sense because they were the two actors with the most experience in expressionist theater. In fact, they'd shared the stage in 1918, during a production at Max Reinhardt's famous Deutsche Theater in Berlin. Reinhardt was probably the most important theater director of his generation, and he had as much of an influence on German Expressionist film as anyone. There's a reason that Lada Eisner, that old Weina hater, there's a reason she titled her most famous book, the book that gave this podcast its name, The Haunted Screen, Expressionism in the German Cinema and the Influence of Max Reinhardt. And there's a reason why, in her portrayal of the singer Sally Bowles in Cabaret, Liza Minnelli fantasizes, One of these days, Max Reinhardt's going to drift into the club. Reinhardt's company served as a pipeline that brought Germany's best actors from the stage to the screen in a way that's maybe comparable to how the Second City Improv Troupe has served American comedy. He worked with an ungodly number of the actors that we'll touch on this season. What's more, his approach to lighting was also profoundly influential. Here's Eisner. The Germans knew how to light films. They had learned a lot through the theater, through this magic light of Reinhardt. Reinhardt was more a sort of modeling like uh, Rembrandt. It's much softer, but you found still this contrast, this shock of light and uh, shadow, which you find in expressionistic films. We don't have time to go down the Reinhardt rabbit hole here. You've already given me an hour of your time, and I don't want to test your patience with another digression. But to bring it back to Caligari, Veit and Krauss's experience in anti-realist theater productions like his set them up for success in this film. They were accustomed to working in that symbolic, almost metaphysical tone, and their fully committed performances brought cohesion to this strange little movie. Who directed? Who directed what classic German expressionistic film called Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? The picture was made in 1919, directed by Robert Wein, with the screenplay by Carl May and Hans Johnwood, cinematography by Willie Hamweister. You're right. <laughs> this game is so easy. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I've heard people compare the process of making art 
to childbirth. As a childless human man, I am in a pretty bad position to judge the truth of that analogy, but I think I do have some understanding of the sentiment behind it. Making a movie or any other work of art, it's an intense and intensely personal process, and one that can be more than a little painful. And then once you've finally given birth to the film or novel or painting or play, it toddles out into the world and beyond your grasp. The way it interacts with that world, the position it finds in the grand scheme of things, it's in a lot of ways out of a parent's control. Well, Meyer, Janowitz, Palmer, Meinert, Varm, Ryman, Rorig, Vina, and all the rest watch The Cabin of Dr. Caligari wander out into the big wide world on February 26, 1920, when it premiered at the Marmor House Theater in Berlin. It was a glamorous place for a debut, with its white marble facade hanging above the broad, tree-lined boulevard of Kurfürstendamm, Berlin's answer to the Champs-Élysées. So those spectators who occupied the Marmor House's 620 seats on that winter night a century ago, what did they think of this strange new movie? Well, Eric Palmer left us an account. Speaking in the 1950s, he claimed, quote, The audience demonstrated against it and asked for its money back. So after two performances, the theater threw it out and I couldn't get another theater to show the film. This just didn't happen. Really, his myth of an initial failure was just a setup for a self-aggrandizing story about Palmer putting up his own money to give Caligari a second theatrical run that would ultimately vindicate the film. Janowitz's account appears to be closer to reality. He remembered the premiere like this. When the picture ended, there was a stunned silence. Meyer and I, standing in the back of the gallery, looked at each other. So it had been a failure? Suddenly, the stunned silence was shattered by applause, applause rising to a crescendo that broke into a thunderous outburst of frantic calling and clapping, a raving audience, shouting with joy and acclamation. Again, we looked at each other. Well, it's a success. Robert Vina, Eric Palmer, the actors, painters, and photographers acknowledged the applause. Not we, the authors. We beat a hasty retreat to a nearby liquor buffet, considered our future and wondered whether our future scripts would be produced in crippled form by cowardly directors. It seems that Janowitz just couldn't see the masterpiece that everybody else saw, and rather than consider whether he might be missing something, he inaugurated what would become a long tradition of throwing Robert Vina under the bus. Thankfully, though, his low opinion of the film was the minority position. Though you'll find some accounts to the contrary, it appears that the critical consensus was largely positive, first in Germany, and then in France and the United States as well. Many critics noted its apparent relationship with modern art. The New York Times, for instance, described Caligari as a cubistic world of intense relief and depth. Another critic wrote that along with the works of Charlie Chaplin, Caligari established, quote, the integrity of the motion picture as an art. There is no longer any need for doubt or discouragement. This is perhaps the most significant legacy of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It is arguably the grandfather of art house cinema, straddling as it did the border between high art and popular entertainment. The plot was that of a conventional, if spooky, detective story, but it was told through the spectacular aesthetics of the early 20th century avant-garde. And this seemingly daring approach didn't limit the audience. It expanded it. See, Caligari wasn't meant to be shown in galleries or museums 
or to be watched only by film professors like me. Of course, film professors like me didn't exist in 1920, but that's beside the point. Film was a decidedly working class entertainment at the time, a cheap amusement for workers to take in on their way home from the factory. Caligari aimed to keep that crowd with its exciting, fast-paced story. But it also used the cachet of modernist art to draw the middle, upper, and intellectual classes into the theater. While Caligari looked like nothing else on the German screen, it was recognizably fashionable to any culturally aware Berliner. Expressionist aesthetics had by this point seeped outward from their birthplace in avant-garde art shows and small circulation journals. Expressionist plays were hugely popular, and photos of their Caligari-esque sets were widely published. During the German Civil War, Expressionist-inspired propaganda posters were ubiquitous. In Berlin, Luna Park had been given an Expressionist facelift, giving it a look that anticipated the carnival in Caligari. By the time of the film's release, the hippest of the hip were already sick of the style. A writer in 1919 claimed, somewhat misogynistically, that Expressionism, quote, today affords titillation and edification to clergymen's daughters and factory owners' wives. What once seemed a daring gesture is now routine. Basically, the Expressionist style was at a cultural sweet spot, where it was just popular enough to be broadly appealing, but not so pervasive that the great mass of the public considered it boring or stale, the aforementioned writer's opinion notwithstanding. If Urban Outfitters existed in 1920, it would have sold Expressionist sunglasses. At this point in film history, Hollywood had cornered the market on crowd-pleasing blockbusters with tidy narratives. With Caligari, German filmmakers had found a niche that they could occupy, something darker, artsier, and more ambiguous. Here's how Eric Palmer described this post-World War I realization. The German film industry made stylized films to make money. Germany was defeated. How could she make films that would compete with the others? It would have been impossible to try. And so we tried something new, the expressionist or stylized films. It can be a bummer to find out that what looks to us like a revolutionary new art movement was, on some level, a cynical ploy to separate moviegoers from their money. I try not to let it bother me too much, though. The art produced within a given culture will always be marked and constrained by the contours of that culture. Germany in 1920 was a capitalist society, like the United States is now. Whether it's the latest Marvel movie or the next piece of surrealist body horror from David Cronenberg, commercial concerns and motivations shape the films we get. For the German film pioneers of the 1920s, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari offered a template, a path of artistic ambition and genuine creativity that, in Caligari's case at least, led both to profit and to film immortality. And that's what we're going to be looking at this season. How and why a certain place... Germany, especially Berlin, at a certain time, the decade or so between the end of World War I and the solidification of Nazi power, produced one of the most creatively fertile moments in the history of cinema. We'll look at the tropes, the directors, the writers, and the movies that define Weimar film. Now, if you're following along at home, the next episode focuses on two classics from 1922, Nosferatu and Dr. Mabuse the Gambler, both of which are available for free on YouTube. Watch if you want, and don't if you don't. Either way, I hope to see you there. The theme song for The Haunted Screen, as well as other music, comes courtesy of the Great Pacific Garbage Vortex. Additional music from Yevgeny Barduzia, Coma Media, Arndt Stelter, Julius H., Hot Music, Roman Belov, 
and Zakhar Valala. In accordance with the principles of fair use, we use clips from The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, CNN, CBS, The Telegraph, Only Lovers Left Alive, ITV, The BBC, This Week, Riverdale, Memories of Berlin, Lotte Eisner in Germany, An Unfortunate Series of Events, Rosa Luxemburg, Portlandia, Mad Men, The Black Pit of Dr. M, Cabaret, and Saturday Night Live. Thanks so much to our sponsor, Fujifilm, and of course to you for giving me your time. Until next episode.